Welcome to the Growth League podcast, where we interview business owners who have experienced quantum leap growth in their business. In each episode, we're going to dive deep into our guests' firsthand experience about what it was like 90 days before and 90 days after that point when their business started experiencing massive growth. Matthew Canyon serves as Chief Strategy Officer at Reach working to guide Reach's overarching merchant engagement strategies. A veteran of the payments industry, Matthew arrived at Reach six years ago, bringing with him more than a decade of experience across some of the world's leading brands. His understanding of the global complexities in the payments arena provides Reach with unparalleled insight into worldwide marketplaces and hyper-local territories. With an appreciation for the nuances that define payment structures across cultures and continents, Matthew is instrumental in tailoring Reach's offering to benefit merchants in every country. His strategic mindset helps merchants to plan for the long game, researching and understanding the trends in payment methods, tax regulations, and marketing to help future-proof the operations of Reach's clients. While he spends his time inside the office guiding merchants across the globe, once Matthew has left the building, he likes nothing more than exploring the great outdoors. Whether paddleboarding on lakes, skiing down frozen peaks, or hiking through wooded trails, Matthew's downtime is always spent appreciating the wonders of nature. Join me for this awesome interview. Welcome. Thanks for being on the show, Matthew. I really appreciate it. Yes, my pleasure. Awesome. So. Our community here is, is made up of a bunch of, um, it's, it's kind of split down the middle. A lot of business owners, entrepreneurs um, in very, you know, across a large variety of uh, different industries, as well as um, marketers, okay, marketing managers, directors of marketing. And so uh, what I like to do is, is dig into the topics of growth, obviously, and, and that can um, be in all areas. Uh, so culture being a part of that growth or or, uh, you know, big moments, maybe a big client, uh, whatever that may be. Um, but then also taking a look at um, how marketing and how digital marketing uh, played a role, if it did at all, in that growth journey. Um, but what I want to do first is, is have you bring us all the way back to sort of the origin of, of Reach. Um, how did it start? Uh, yeah, it actually... Um... It started originally as kind of a spinoff uh, from Calgary Foreign Exchange. Um, and what it was is Calgary Foreign Exchange had a, like a, was trying to sell a new kind of FX product where traditionally they've been around for 30 years, um, but really traditional just corporate FX. You know, I have a, I'm an oil company in Calgary and I need to pay this payroll in India or for, pay for this huge piece of equipment from China. And they're basically moving the funds just through like wire transfer. And they had come across a, a new kind of FX solution that allows it, e-commerce merchants to easily price in local currency and eliminate all the risk. Basically like doing micro FX of locking in at checkout. Um, and so the CEO, Sam, had actually approached me because I was working at a, a, another large global processor. And he was basically trying to sell this FX solution to, to the merchants of, of that company at that time. 
And, and we was going, I was like, you know, there's the, the way you're looking at the way you're trying to sell it. It's not going to work that way. You, with the way that the technical solution works and the different requirements for merchant accounts and, and how the money flows, they're not just, you can't just integrate this FX solution and you have to do X, Y, Z. And as we started looking at that, there was, we realized there was this giant gap in the market. Um, and from there, this entire product and reach was kind of grown for them, but it was originally just the FX, but then it came into doing local processing in a, in a much better way, as we saw gaps. And that was kind of how it started. Mm -hmm. How critical to prof, uh, you know, merchant profitability, business profitability is this ability to have seamless sort of uh, cross-border exchange, um, making it really localized is, is what you guys hang your hat on. Tell me about where that plays into the overall uh, proposition. Well, it, it's, it's huge. It, um, when I, I've been in global payments for a while now, and I remember when I, when I first started, it was, it was the whole job with, with working with these e-commerce retailers and merchants was convincing the customer that it's okay to buy cross-border that don't worry, the product's gonna get there. And it's, it was all about building trust. Now it, there's been a complete shift in the market where uh, someone goes on Instagram or whatever marketing it is, when they come to there, they expect personalization. They expect that you're gonna service them. Yeah. It, even though that merchant probably, or that retailer isn't even trying to, they're targeting a lookalike audience and not necessarily someone in Sylvania, right? It's, right. it's just something that goes out there. So, Nowadays, if so, people are coming and clicking on the website, expecting personalization, expecting, well, you know, that you're going to actually service them and they will absolutely buy from you as long as you don't have huge friction points. Right. And, and, and not having in the, in the customer's local currency, not offering local payment methods, not knowing what the duty and tax is going to be, um, all kinds of shipping delays, how you communicate to them, translation, everything is incredibly important. And if you, eliminate that friction, you're going to absolutely capitalize on cross-border where you look at most merchants growth is, is you know, with, with COVID, there's been huge growth domestically, but when you look at cross-border, that's even double digits than just normal e-commerce. Right, right. Yeah, it's amazing. Us as uh, online consumers, if there is any interruption to, you know, what we, um, to, to a seamless user experience, um, our confidence just plummets, right? And and um, so for me, if I was to go onto a website of a retailer that's using Reach's platform, you're saying that essentially that will it will everything I see will be applicable to me locally. So currency, um, what else? What else uh, demonstrates the, the the personalization or the local localization? Right. So it it, it goes into several layers but ultimately as you come on to to there you're going to always see it in the local currency and specific to a, a pricing strategy right. there are different markets where you say within europe it's common to have like the, the the vat and the taxes included into the product pricing and because if they see that at checkout sometimes you'll get a much lower conversion rate so it's all about not just seeing in the local currency but market specific pricing that's going to allow for the best customer experience, right? And whether it's rounded to the nearest dollar in some markets or rounded to 99 or whatever it is, there's all types of best practices per market that you're really going to go in. So it's not just that, that local currency, it's really going into that best practice, gotcha. right? And then it is going to be able to see when they go in, it, you know, in some markets, what are those taxes and any types of 
you know, if there's any duty on top of it, what everything through the checkout, actually calculating that, making sure that that product can actually be shipped there. Um, there's a lot of times where they're, depending on what country they're coming from, there could be certain product restrictions. So it's making sure that there's no surprises at the checkout. So they're only seeing the relevant pricing and the products that are available to that customer. Gotcha. Then going into the actual checkout and seeing the actual um, relevant payment methods right. that are going to be there, right? And um, probably as like a, a, a Canadian customer, I'm sure you'll you're, you're, see sometimes like you look on these, these US websites and they're advertising like Afterpay or this Buy Now, Play Later or Affirm, right? And you say, oh, this is great. I want to pay. Affirm's offering all these installments. It's great. But then you actually go there in the checkout and you can actually, Canadian customers can't actually check out with the firm. Right. So marketing them and advertising them something that they go to the checkout and get declined Super is a horrible process, right? Yeah. So then it's making sure that that advertising and the, and the payment methods are all, all completely localized. Uh, interesting. And, and would, does your platform sync up with the available inventory of that re retailer as well? So it won't show unless it's, in, sorry, not the available inventory, but the available inventory that can be distributed to my, to where, where I live, right? right. It may show up different for someone in Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah, okay. exactly. And so what will happen is what we do is also is depending on if you're like, cosmetic, like depending on what you're selling, there is so, so many different regulations of what you can sell, and what you can't sell, right? Like you could, you could sell a watch, um, but then you have like a, a alligator leather right. uh, band and that can't go into Australia. So it's like going in before and doing a kind of compliance check to make sure that the, the retailers don't get fined and are doing everything properly. Gotcha. So for those, there, there's a few people on that listen to our podcast that may not be aware of, of uh, what the capital raise scene in the Bay Area looks like and, and how uh, this has become just a, a balloon uh, thing over, over the last several decades. And tell us, so give us some, give us some context in terms of how big that, um, that game is in the barrier, Bay Area and why is reach a little bit different in terms of how they first, yeah. first, first set up and, and started to grow. Yeah, I mean, it's always been crazy in the Bay Area. And I, nowadays, I don't even think it's just in the Bay Area. It's almost kind of yeah, that's everywhere. Um, but it is, it's crazy. It is every single day I, I see a friend or, or just a, another news article pop up and it's, oh, now this round and they're worth X. And, and, and it's like they were worth, oh, they're worth a billion dollars now. And then six months later, they do another round and now they're worth three billion. I was like, how in <laughs> six months did they raise, did, are they worth it? And they come with these valuations, which I don't frankly understand of how, how they are because it's not like true market. It's just whatever... But it, it is crazy. And it, and it seems about most people care about revenue and the next round of funding versus actually what the real business is. But it is, it, it's just, it's everywhere in the market. Um, and we've, so we're basically kind of like the, the anti Silicon Valley a little bit where we've had a lot of opportunities to take on funding and we've decided not to, where we basically have, it's been self-funded since the start. Hmm. Tell me more about that. Um, you know, it, it was just a decision that we made. Um, like I, the, the previous company that I came from, I guess I could speak personally to this was, you know, uh, uh, I was brought in when the private equity purchased it and they basically had a three-year plan and 
and to get out. And it was, hor- it was horrible in, in, far, in terms of culture, in terms of building a business and a product, because all they cared about was the bottom line. And they would do anything to make that bottom line look better just to sell it off. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they made a huge profit, but it really left a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah. Um, and I think that was from San, the CEO and, and everyone else just really didn't want to give up control and we wanted to do it our own way and not, mm-hmm. and not have to, you know, be, be someone else's, have to just have, have another boss and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, not control the business. So in your industry, with the type of service you guys offer, how, how do you circumvent that more traditional route to growth and, and grow a little bit more organically? Can you tell us about the story of, of from inception, what were some key strategic moves that you guys, uh, you guys did to start, start to hit that upswing in growth? Right. So I think w- one of the key things with our growth is when you look at it, and especially global payments, we can cover, and, and our model can cover all areas from B2B to digital, to travel, to like online retail. And with being such a small budget and, and really being bootstrapped, we went in to like for online retail, we went very, very specific, very niche and very, very deep. And that enabled us to get some, some movement and, and just focus in, in that focus. Hmm. And, and then you get a couple, you know, big retailers with a good name and, and then you're able to start that out. And, and I think it also helped with, we, we went so niche where it was the pain that we were solving was huge. So that enabled us as we were growing, there was a lot of pitfalls. There was a lot of, um, we weren't perfect by any means, but a lot of those pitfalls, the, the, the pain that we, um, the, the, the pain that we solved far outweighed all of our, of our pitfalls right. and, and not having a full platform where I think I see, and that's a good example of a lot of these startups that take a lot of funding. They have to have X revenue very fast. So they have to go kind of very wide right. starting out. Right. And then your product has to kind of be perfect and you, and it, you start dilute, getting a lot of dilution um, where it's very hard, but because you have to get X growth by this one. And because we were just bootstrapped, we could start with a very, very niche and then grow up from there. And it didn't matter that we hadn't have to have 300 merchants and X revenue by this time. It was mm. more about getting the product right, getting everything, you know, fulfilling our promise to the merchants and growing organically from there. Right. And you could do it at your own pace, at your own schedule, right? Because uh, you weren't under the mandate of, of those that gave the money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, um, we still had to do payroll and stuff, which wasn't well, for like, sure, for easy sure. at times, but yes, you, you know. Hey, if you're not struggling to, if you're not struggling to make payroll every once in a while, then you're not, you're not playing the game, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you built something worth scaling and then, and then scaled from there. Right. And what, what was the original niche? I, I'm not sure if you mentioned that. It was just, we just went into like online retail, basically okay. someone's selling a physical product and shipping it cross border. Okay. Got you. Was there a moment in time, I mean, growth is, as we talked about before, it's kind of cyclical or ups and downs, but was there a moment of time that sticks out to you where um, it was a big win and it sort of catapulted you to a next next level of, of trajectory growth? Um, we, we did have several big wins, but um, I would say that the biggest one where we saw 
uh, was all of a sudden we kept on getting these leads coming in and we're like, what is going on? And it was like a lot of like these um, kind of startup kind of like founders in, in like these Facebook groups and different groups started talking about us right. or I would get some like really no well brands come in. And I was like, well, how did you find out about us? And like, oh, well, we hired a consultant to see what this is. And they recommended you as, as one of the three recommendations. And I never even spoken to that consultant. So it was more about like, we were all of a sudden, and I was like, this is, we're now known as, a, as someone that's actually feeling these pains and we're getting, mm. you know, word around the market. Mm. And then that was kind of when you started seeing, okay, we really got something and this is some real growth here. Right. So your number one, I'd imagine your number one lever to growth is getting, um, you know, getting set up with good retailer and merchant partnerships. What defines sort of the perfect uh, partner merchant for you guys that, that would really thrive with the platform? Um, usually it, it's like we can help everyone, right? But it usually is the, 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 the retailer that has a large enough international volume where they really feel the pain. If you're mm -hmm. just starting to do international and stuff and you're, you're getting a couple orders a month, it's, you know, yes, we can help, but it's not like, it's, it's something like you already have this international traffic. You already have kind of this demand, but you're not capitalizing on it. You're right. not optimizing it. And that's really when it makes sense to, to partner with us and we can work together on the strategy, the integration, and then really execute on that. All, all different sizes of, of uh, merchants, retailers, as long as yes. they have a strong international uh, component to their, to their sales site. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, what have you guys done from a marketing or, or a digital marketing standpoint that has really worked um, to, to attract and acquire new merchant, merchant or retailer partners? Um, and, and where are some areas that you guys are, are still, in your opinion, missing the boat or struggling? What we've done with some of the digital marketing is, you know, developing several like case studies and, and really putting that out there. Um, I think any type of those types of validation and, and also explaining what we do and how we do it, um, it has been a great impact, right? Um, so that, that's been definitely a positive. Where we definitely need help is just on, on brand and, and being able to, what we do is so, the, the, the issue that we always face is there, there's all these, a lot of marketing things about, oh, global is easy and here's like an easy button. But the truth is, is global is extremely complex and complicated. And, and depending on what you're doing in the merchant and what markets you're going to, it's, it's very layered. And, and to be able to market that and to be able to actually tell that truthfully on a website or something coming on there has always been very difficult. So what we really need to do is, because once we get down with someone and we can go on a demo and we can do and explain, like these lights go on and we're a no brainer because they look at how you're doing it now versus how you're doing it. But most people don't even understand if they're even doing it wrong because mm. they don't, the, the education level on, on really doing great global e-commerce is, is, it's not widely known. There's not too many really good experts out there. Right. So if you like a lot of business businesses and a lot of business owners that are, that are on this podcast and, and are listening, 
if you have the opportunity to get face-to-face -face, kneecap to kneecap through a demo or some more intimate experience with the merchant, you're, you're batting a hundred percent or close to that, right? It's, it's sort of that init initial awareness, understanding and, and engagement phases of the funnel that is causing some issue. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. How long yeah. has that been? I mean, that burdens a lot of us, um, how, but how long has that been a material challenge for you guys? Um, it, it's now been, it, it's always been a, a challenge from the beginning, but I think from where we started to like, it, most people always hitting up or, or the sales team had no idea who reach was. And it was more about just hitting up their pain points and explaining there's a better way and building that on. And then it was always through partners and referrals Right. So that, that was easier. So they were like, someone from a trusted was coming in. Now that we're getting enough scale and we're actually getting people that are just coming to the website that are coming here that aren't from our direct outreach or from a referral, it's becoming much more like a, a blaring issue of, because right. they're coming on and, and not being able to be convinced or not being able to see what the value is or what it is. Right, right. And before that, we didn't even have people coming to the website, right? It, the only reason they would come to the website is because, again, they referred or we sent them a direct email or a call saying, this is what you're doing wrong. This is what we can do to help. Okay. Gotcha. So if, if a merchant or retailer that does a lot of international business, um, so they're in the, and they meet the criteria of who a good partner would be, what are you hoping that they do when they get to the site? I imagine there's, because there's an apply now uh, form, what happens after that? So the form gets filled out. Talk to me about the, you know, the, the flow of, of how you engage with these folks after that. Yeah. So it, it typically it, it immediately they'll come in and we'll have like automatic responses going, going out of, um, but then it's usually some of, we have like a SDRs that work um, about qualifying and setting up meetings and stuff. So they'll actually look at that the, the merchant that goes to the website, see if they're a good qualified, um, what their web traffic is, what are they doing localization now, what's going on. Right. And then usually from there, then we'll, we'll reply back with very specific um, pain points or anything to, to really get them. And with the goal of being, if they're qualified, get them on a demo. Mm -hmm. If they're not really qualified or if they're too small or, or we don't think they're like a fit or product, we'll usually put them on like a, a newsletter or Right. you know something put into like a drip system right and then hopefully they come back to you with a little bit more understanding of the of the pain you alleviate that that's right the, okay or, or or maybe like which when they're you know if they come back when they're larger or right. whatever it is gotcha okay um with uh with a partner that is has gone through all the gauntlet of you know the application the making sure they meet criteria um, how long does getting set up typically take with a, with a new merchant? Um, I know it probably de depends on how much business they're doing, but what does onboarding look like and, and how long does that take? It, it is, it really is merchant to merchant. Mm -hmm. And uh, the biggest thing is, is the technical integrations. Right. So if they're on like a, a platform, like a Shopify or Magento or Salesforce, Commerce Cloud, like that's usually pretty straightforward within a couple of days to a couple of weeks. Right. To like if they're on a really large retailer or, or merchant that is on a custom website where that could take three months, four right. months. The um, 
for, for you guys, uh, obviously there's a lot of stuff to be doing on a day-to-day -day now and, and fulfilling the strategy that's been set out um, in place, but is there a mountain in the distance that you guys all have your, your eyes set on? Like what's the, what's the pie in the sky sort of growth goal um, in terms of what you'll be doing, maybe different markets that you're in, uh, different, different uh, product launches. Uh, tell me about the vision of the future. Yeah. So where we see it now is, is a very exciting time is because we've started so niche within that, but now it's looking and putting our heads up and say, okay, we still have a ton to do within online retail and that's going to be always a focus, right. but then moving on to so many different areas of, of different industries, a little bit of working with marketplaces or B2B or, um, you know, going into digital. So really going out and expanding and just being more of like a, a true, like if you're doing anything cross border that you would, you look upon reach regardless of what you're doing. Right. Okay. So everything is going to boil down to cross border, right? Yes. That, okay. Yeah. Right. Cross border is our thing. It's basically we allow merchants that if you're accepting a payment, if you want to, no matter where you are, where the customer is, if you want to accept a payment, we're the, we're the, we're the best way to do that. Got you. So what are some other examples of applications where this would, where this would be relevant? So obviously online, you know, buying, buying goods, like, you know, what you're doing now, but uh, what are some different uh, applications that you're talking about? Right. So like one thing is, is huge, especially that's been B2B is very like checks and, and bank wires and stuff, which is incredibly outdated. Um, and usually a lot of times like you have like a, a U.S. company, even to Canada, right? They're, they're invoicing in U.S. dollars. And then the Canadian customers got to go to some other to their bank or some other provider that's not even connected to the transaction, you complete the FX and it's, it's all, none of it's automated. It's always very slow and they're not getting the best rates. Mm -hmm. So, and, and a lot of times now people really want to pay with credit cards. People want to do this. A lot of the suppliers, right. the buyers want to do that, you know? And so really enabling that and, and having it be a, bringing e-commerce to the B2B world. Right. Where instead of they can that U.S. customer merchant can still invoice in U.S. dollars, but just from a simple click, that customer can then see, okay, it, here's the actual exchange rate, and it's a very very attractive change rate to do in Canadian dollars. They can choose to pay with bank transfer, and it's all automatic online. They can do with credit cards. They can do with like a direct debit, whatever they want to do. Gotcha. It's basically seamless, and <clears throat> doesn't matter where the customer is located. Right. right, we're going to be localized. So they can send that invoice out to a Canadian customer, Australian customer, customer in Brazil. It's all going to be 100% localized. Gotcha. One of, the, uh, one of the questions that I had jotted down here um, before our call was, you know, your, your chief strategy officer for REACH. And a lot of uh, marketing directors and business owners struggle with narrowing the gap between great strategy and, and great execution. What do you think are some critical components for, for executing upon growth that can narrow that gap between theoretical strategy and, and actually getting it done? Um, I like to get things out there. Right. Um, waiting and trying to get it perfect because I've had so many experiences where you wait an extra six months or a year to get this product this way. And I've never had one that didn't have problems that didn't have something. So I'd rather have it do a lot quicker 
and learn from it and, and start to move it and actually get some real world experience as well. Um, one thing that in my past, like especially we started, maybe we, as I look back, maybe went out with some, some new things a little too quick, but I really would say like our product was forged by fire in the fact of like, it was out there tested and then got merchant feedback immediately. Instead of us going down some other direction, it was really saying, okay, there's no assumptions. This is true with what's happening. And we were able to iterate as we moved it on. Hmm. Now you, you have to get like merchants and stuff that are willing to play that. Um, so it was really finding really good partners it, to help you go through that phase um, and, and, and then go quicker than slow. When you're trying to iterate based on the feedback of, of your customer, um, are you, were you straight up honest with them and saying, hey guys, we're in some form of, of, of beta or something like that, or, or how did that go? Do you, you bring them into the process with you or, or was it kind of just like, we're on the market now, let's see what they say and then iterate behind closed doors? Behind. Well, the, the way a lot of this time went was it, we were, when the product was first getting developed and we didn't have like a, a whole picture of exactly what reach was, we had an ideas and we had a, a lot of specific functionality, but then it was finding large, like a really good prospects and merchants. And, and you would go in and usually they would need something that was custom. Right. Now, and, and, and normally it's a very, very bad strategy to pick a, a specific prospect or something and just make something custom for them. But it was like, I, you had to really work hard. We had to really work hard to get these first merchants to find out what they needed, that we needed to build custom from them was something that we could also sell to the entire market. So we, we went with them knowing that, okay, we're going to build this for you and we're going to build this. And it was kind of custom where they were willing to play the game, knowing that we were starting from scratch and that we're going to be doing this. Uh, and so they were really able to learn with it, but we were confident enough that what the, the pain that they had was something that a lot of, of merchants had that pain. So we were able to, so we didn't want to do any custom builds specific to them that was only doing this because it was only really custom to what we thought was marketable. So we would turn down a lot of saying, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. Oh, what you need, we think the market needs. So we're going to work with you to build this and make it. So, and that was really helpful and, and definitely being bootstrapped is you, you couldn't just go down and build it without having revenue come in. So it was nice that we were able to build this in, get revenue from it, and then make our, our product that much better. Gotcha. As you go forward towards this uh, vision that you described a few minutes earlier um, about looking for different application of the same cross-border functionality in the platform that you um, that you guys have um, created, what do you think that the biggest one, two, three obstacles are going to be? Your challenges are going to be to be able to fulfill that vision. Is it is it competitive? Is it consumer behavior? What what are the biggest challenges you think to realizing this vision of getting broader? Um, I think it's, it, some of the challenges are, are more like internal as we go from just being always just so bootstrapped and like such a small core team of, of people who just knew it, it, knew it front and back. Right. And now we're doubling size. Now we're looking to hire another hundred people and, and, and all this stuff. And like, how do you scale that properly? How do you make sure that our culture and everything remains the same and, and we still fulfill that promise to the merchants 
I see as, as being one of the most difficult because I think the market is, the timing is for just, the, the, the world is gonna be more global. The world is being, being more digital. It is, timing is, is, is great. And mm-hmm. there's competitors all over, but it's very hard for, I don't think any of them are in the next three or four years is gonna take complete market share. It's, it's so big. So I'm not too concerned there. It's more about us executing and really going and scaling properly. Got you. And I guess that's where part of the brand that you were talking about and improvement in the brand is going to help because you want to be known for cross-border, right? When people say that, your reach is the group. Um, you talked about doubling or getting some you know, new staff as you grow. Um, do you have a good number of sort of day one ambassadors of, of reach that are going to be able to help communicate that where we came from vision and, and, and leverage that as going forward? We're starting to, you know, it, it was kind of like, uh, as the thing is just, I, it, uh, as soon as like, it especially was different with, with COVID it's we're still yeah. not, I mean, we have offices in the UK and, and, and in the U S and Canada and, and Australia and some other kind of employees everywhere. Um, but now it's, it's, it was never really of a thought because we were always so, I was always, no matter what, was talking to someone at the company at least a couple times a day, going even on Zooms, on Slack, whatever it is. Now there's, there's several people that I've never met. And there's also even more people I've never even talked to or Slack to. So now we're like, it's it, honestly, it's become more of a realization like, oh, oh, we got to get this, get this going and, and, and keep that same culture, which mm-hmm. we're just figuring out now, to be yeah. honest. Yeah, it's a big topic. It's it's critical for growth, obviously. Um, well, this has been great. I mean, um, between between this conversation and, and kind of a prep one we had a few weeks ago, uh, I've I've become uh, very much impressed with the fact that you you eluded the uh, the trap that is, <laughs> you know, getting a seed round and multiple seed rounds and and doing it bootstrap, being committed to to a vision, wanting to be known for a thing and then replicating from there. Um, I think these are all critical sort of business fundamentals and, and a lot of our audience can, can take a lot of value from it. Um, I always like to end with this, uh, Matthew, uh, and I'm not sure if this applies to you or not, but um, are you a guy that has any form of routine that you commit to on a, on a day-to-day basis, morning, afternoon, or night, or you just kind of wing it? <laughs> no, I, I have a... a pretty rigid morning schedule um, that I stick to. Can you tell us about it? Well, yeah, it's, uh, I wake up usually around like uh, 4.30 a.m., do some yoga, some breath work, some meditation. I usually write in a journal and then I'll have just a, a coffee and then I'll usually read some type of industry um, or anything that I think is gonna be helpful to business, whatever. So it's usually, it, you know, it's a good three hours, three and a half hours uh, before I start work that I usually go through this every day. That's awesome. Is there anything um, top of mind that that uh, that you're grateful for these days? Oh, my family. I'm grateful for so much. Right. It is, you know, uh, my family, the coworkers, work, everything. I mean. That we're all that we're healthy. That yeah. you know, everyone it reaches healthy. So that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I hope I hope it stays that way. And uh, thank you so much for giving us a bit of a look behind uh, the curtain at Reach. And um, 
uh, I'm certainly going to be an advocate as, as much as I can. So I appreciate it. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care, Matthew. The Growth League podcast is brought to you by Hook and Ladder Digital. We are a digital marketing agency that focuses on building and nurturing engaged brand communities, as well as designing, developing, and optimizing lead generation and conversion funnels that leverage advertising, email, landing pages, and content. Our goal is to connect great products and services with the people that want and need them most at the time that makes most sense for them. We want to see business leaders and marketers win and experience next level growth by co-creating a strategy and working together to implement into market and realize the ROI that we're all looking for. So if you have any questions on your digital marketing program, you need support, or you'd just like to have us take a look, please check us out www.hldigital.ca. Thanks so much.